Hey folks, it's the Unsung Podcast, I'm Mark And who's that? It's me it's, uh, him. It, it's technically the Unsung Podcast It's the Unsung Unsung Podcast Unsung Unsung Podcast unsung, unsung. This week So it's been a wee while since I've seen you Since the Lancome Odyssey How's life been in Christopherland? I have been tolling the fields in County Mayo Like the Wrens <laughs> Shoulders hunched against the Atlantic wind. Actually, you know, honestly, the weather's been lovely. It's been <laughs> so good, man. I, I can't even I can't even sell that because it's been fantastic. You've got, um, he's got a tan and everything. I mean, you can't see him. I know he's got a tan. That is, but well, the thing is, you can see me because usually I'm semi-transparent, <laughs> and the tan has True. gotten rid of my transparency. Uh, no, uh, I've been okay. We about a food poisoning. Oh what? No way. I don't think I don't know what was food poisoning. I'm pretty sure. It was Wayne's. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of receptacles of disease. Uh, so. Yeah, I went to the science centre. Ah, center, that'll do it. That'll it's do it. a great place. It's full of these little games. Oh, look at what magnets can do. What you can't see, if I wish I had like a black light, is that it's covered in the ectoplasm of children. And that is clearly the most dangerous biological hazard on the planet. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I did get a lesson in science Inadvertently <laughs> In the wrong way From that trip to the science centre I learned all kinds of things About my bowels I learned all kinds of things About my toilet floor A number of things About what food looks like About an hour after You were tuning <laughs> it <laughs> Pleasant uh, So yeah it, it was a Science rich Educational week I'm sure it was Of me. hurling mm-hmm. um, Not not in the sense of like What Actual hurling <laughs> not, in, not in the sense of Gaelic or Gaelic sport um, No, uh, other than that, I'm okay uh, How about yourself? You know, I'm actually It's a whole thing people say all the time oh, That a person's a wee bit OCD Or that a person's got a wee bit OCD It's not a thing You don't give a wee bit OCD, right? <laughs> um, ever since I was a wee guy I've always been really fucking particular About having clean hands Like, I have to wash them all the fucking time I had really bad eczema about six months ago my hands were just fucking flaky and raw as fuck Because I was using so much soap I now I now have nicer soap to my hands Which is good Because um, the doctor was like Don't fucking use that soap you Thank, thank you subscribers You've yeah. enabled Mark to invest in nicer um, soap There's there's a, an incentive for you But that kind of shit you just spoke about there Is um, is one of the reasons why I, I I don't know why But it's one of the many reasons why I have to have my hands clean at all time Like I will, I will go home after this podcast recording And I'll have touched my car steering wheel Which I'm pretty sure is reasonably clean and I will scrub the fuck out of my hands when I go home for I make dinner. Then I will make dinner, and then I'll, then I'll wash my hands for I eat dinner, and then I will wash my hands after I eat dinner. Are you like the the <laughs> the, the, the multi multi millionaire that kind of drove himself nuts? The inspiration for that um, tales from the crypt about the super rich guy that wanted to be away from every single possible bit of dust and germs. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not quite that bad. Um, <laughs> but I can see. I can see that in my future. <laughs> I truly can see that in my future. Well, I believe in. Uh, Nurturing a healthy immune system uh, uh, During Covid I was as healthy uh, And as cautious as the next person I believe But yeah my, my standards have definitely slipped But that taught me a lesson mm-hmm. Aye, you know, you live and learn I survived And get back into my tutus now Yeah <laughs> uh, But as to, as to how I've been I've basically been working on, on band stuff I'm going to plug my single now Did your band yeah. release a single? We did, it's called Fake Nice We're called O Rain O comma Rain Check it out on Spotify it's some of my favourite things I've ever done And if you like the kind of shit that I like <laughs> And if you like this podcast you know the kind of shit I like It's not hip hop but you know most of the kind of shit that I like <laughs> um, You'll probably will dig it So aye, go get a whirl So uh, yeah, well I guess in true DIY sense We want 
our grassroots crowd to go and listen to Mark's song. Yeah, please do. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that's been reciprocated by the the local music scene as a whole. Mark, uh, I'm yeah. sure they were all on board. Every single one of them. It was it was truly a glorious sight to behold, Christopher. We walk the walk. We, we don't walk. just talk the talk, <laughs> do we? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've not got any music to plug uh, I'd like to give a wee shout out to our pal Vicky She's had a wee bit of time out recently So sending loads of love to Vicky Yeah, we wish you well And she will be listening to this And I think she'll probably approve Because Vicky is very much a 90s girl And the subject for this week's uh, unsong Is very much a 90s tune it is. Um, we are going to do a little bit of a special here. So, before we do the big reveal, uh, Unsong is, as you may have gathered, uh, a series of kind of <laughs> or a subgenre of Unsung, of unsung. <laughs> uh, where we focus in on particular tracks. Um, the remit's a bit looser. Some of the tracks are quite famous. We've done Duran Duran, for example, and Journey, and Journey, and things like that. But we're also trying to, you know, pick out certain songs that there's something about them that can still maybe apply. Uh, subscribers, you are also going to get an unsung. It's almost definitely not unsung. <laughs> but even then, on the most flimsy of premises, we're going to try and argue the fact that it maybe it could be. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this one is very famous. And yet, and yet, I will bet that you did not know, first of all, how fucking interesting the story around the song yeah, is. Man. Uh-huh. And secondly, how actually, holy shit, this could have actually been an extremely pioneering and potentially revolutionary moment. Oh wow, that's a big claim now, man. <laughs> you, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to do okay, my best. I'm, to back look, it I'm up. looking forward to hearing this. So I chose this, and the track is "Your Woman" by the act White Town. White Town. How would, how would Weaver say White Town? White Town. <laughs> <laughs> he might say White Town. <laughs> Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. <laughs> when he says Weezer. <laughs> right, okay. White Town. White Town. Um, so as soon as you say that name, I, I think it goes... Me, 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 yeah, me. it does. It's just mm. the moment you say it. Um, so yeah, Unsong's a flexible tag. You know, we've been through that many times in the show. Um your Woman, uh, the track in question, hit the UK number one spot in January 1997. At the same time as it went to number one in Iceland and Spain. And it did have notable success elsewhere as well. I think it got to about number 23 maybe in the States, 28, something like that. And on the 2000s, it was in a lot of films. Well, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. And he's got serious beef for that. There's a list of really great things on IMDb of, of what it's been in and there's some really cool stuff. I think compared to tracks of its era, you'll find that oh, it, yeah, I mean, it was really, really neglected in that, in, in that mm-hmm. respect. But anyway, yeah, uh, at the time when this went to number one, it was only the fourth ever debut single to do that. Oh, really? Yeah. See, you always think, you always think that they go to number one, don't you? When yeah, I know. I mean, going back to the 60s and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you imagine there must have been mm-hmm. loads, but no, uh, only the fourth ever. So, the basics behind White Town. Got a lot to get through here. Jyoti Prakash Mishra mm-hmm. uh, is... To some extent, the name of the person behind the band. I'm sorry, Jyoti, if I've mispronounced that. Uh, born on the 30th of July, 1966, in Rurkela, India. Now, as soon as I read that, my anus twitched, and I shivered, and my teeth chattered, and a lonely tear ran down my fucking face. And I was sitting there thinking, why did that 
date of birth evoke such an extreme reaction in me until I looked it up and I realised it's the exact day that England won the World Cup. Ah. <laughs> it's a dark day in Scottish history. Fucking hell, right? And I, I'm not exaggerating. I was looking at it going, I just got a sense of dread. Why did I get a sense of dread? And I had to go and find out what happened on blah, blah, yeah. blah. And there you go. For anybody that isn't Scottish, that's just something you're born with after a certain age like that. It's, yeah. you know... Like it's just part of your DNA. I'm not ready to work through the trauma live on air. This is meant to be a short episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Giotti, uh, or well, I think we'll refer to him as Mishra. It's a little bit easier. Uh, moved to England, age three, and grew up in Derby. And actually, the name White Town refers to Derby. Then I think a lot of those English towns at the time, especially for people coming from you know India, Indian subcontinent, the um, Caribbean, that kind of area, felt you know. I think a lot of those towns actually are are. Much more mixed now, mm-hmm. but at that time, yeah, they were white Middle England towns, and I, I know he encountered quite a bit of racism and felt very much of an outsider. Um, he actually still lives in Derby and records in a, a home studio as White Town. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, <laughs> still going, yeah, absolutely. And um, I've got a quote from him: uh, "Growing up Asian in all white towns has always been big in my brain, and for me, I'd meet Asians and I wouldn't be Asian enough, and I'd meet whites and I wouldn't be white enough. So it's like, well, what is my actual identity? What's my narrative?" Uh, Mishra's got a pretty interesting musical journey um, But before that he'd become straight edge at the age of 16 So White Mm -hmm. Town is full on straight edge It's not something you necessarily hear in the music Um, He actually started drinking when he was 13 Did he? Yeah, and he said in an interview It's very Derby, isn't it? Yeah, he said in an interview recently That um, he actually didn't know the straight edge was a thing He just stopped stopped drinking and said he'd never drink again And then it wasn't until later on in his life That he found out the straight edge was a thing And he's now seen as being a straight edge advocate Mm -hmm. Which is pretty cool yeah, especially because he represents uh, a completely different approach to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That it's not hardcore black X's and yeah. you know big part of your branding. Uh, he's also a self-defined radical Marxist. Yeah, he's a trot, a trotskyist. Trotskyist. Um, started playing keyboard at twelve years old. Quit school at sixteen. Went on the dole. There's an interview that he did with Dazed Online. Dazed Online's kind of Dazed and Confused magazine for internet dwellers. Um, before I started White Town, I was doing synthesizer stuff. The first things I liked were Gary Newman, Depeche Mode, Ultravox, and Heaven 17. Alternative music just meant anything that wasn't in the charts So originally it was all electronic stuff Then I went guitar White Town formed as a guitar band um, Some other influences around that time Are listed as the Wedding Presents Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Junior, My Bloody Valentine um, He famously went to see This is in every single article about White Town He went to see the Pixies in 1989 And then formed the band on the back of that The band was guitar based drums With him and vocals to start with uh, At the third gig They supported Primal Scream mm-hmm. That's one of those ones, isn't yeah. it? It's your fucking third gig, you're supporting Primal Scream for fuck's sake. That's not bad going at all. Um, the band lineup didn't last though. In that same dazed interview, he said, uh, first the guitarist and drummer left, and me and the bassist kept going with the drum machine. Then I turned up for a gig one day and the bassist wasn't there. So mm-hmm. it ended up being me and machines again. Machines can't leave you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but he continues, uh, I'm this weird mix of tyrant musician but also a communist, so there's very few people I would choose to be in a band with. <laughs> a lot of musicians, if they're male, are weird sexists. That's okay if you're meeting somebody for 15 minutes, but if you have to listen to the same jokes over and over again, or the same terrible opinions, you end up in a fist fight. He's pretty right on, and I quite like a lot of what he's got to say on the gender politics uh, of the music scene. We'll come back to that quite a, a few times over the course of this. Um, when I first uh, said to one of our friends, in fact, it might even have been Vicky that I said it to, uh, oh, we're doing White Town, I think their initial reaction was, oh, they only really did that song, didn't they? I was like, uh, they've done seven albums mm-hmm. <laughs> Seven EPs mm-hmm. And loads of other bits and bobs over the years So no, uh, White Town is uh, Productive since 1990 I think his first yeah. thing came out Pretty much yeah. all the way through So it's about 33 going on 34 years Of, of recording and releasing mm. music I mean this song was released on a major label though right um, Yeah, well big. He's got some interest Kind in of, it, it, it was Yeah it, he released it and then they, they made sure yeah. they picked him up And it was kind of released again But he's got some really interesting opinions on, on the major label thing and yeah. his experience. Oh, we'll go through that as well. So early on he was able to start his own mini label which I call, it was called Satya Records thanks to a now extinct government programme for the unemployed called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Um, the money from that enabled him to release White Town's first EP called White Town and a run of 1,000 7-inch vinyls. I will say, any band that's pressing up a thousand seven-inch vinyls these days is pretty confident. Yeah. <laughs> so and, uh, and absolutely fucking mental. Good, good on you. You put your order in to, like two years ago and you're still waiting for them. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have to contend with the Swifties and their yeah. fucking demand for a reissue of the same fucking pink shit. Or Adele. Um, so the sleeve notes of that uh, particular EP has a note in it saying there are some things in life that have to be done regardless of success or failure. Uh, so there's a lot of these little kind of like moments of inspirational quotage uh, in his career. And the band that originally uh, in the band on that EP featured Nick Glenn Davies on drums, Sean Deegan on bass, Mishra on guitar and vocals. Um, it's also got uh, somebody called Sean Phillips credit as guitarist, but I believe they only joined just before it, it came out. Um, there's some early singles. There's one called Darley Abbey from 1990, one called All She Said, 1991. As I say, seven albums so far, uh, Women in Technology, which is the album that Your Woman came from, was the second of those. Um, seven EPs, including the Abort Retry Fail EP, which is the EP that this song also featured on prior to the album. In 1994, he recorded uh, his debut album, Socialism, Sexism and Sexuality, uh, by himself, using an eight-track. That was released on a little imprint called Parasol. It's about 67 minutes long though, and it's a bit banal, although probably not much worse than a lot of reasonably successful British indie pop at the time. Mm-hmm. It really sounds of its time. It kind of mixes bits of Bell and Sebastian, like the tweeness, with a kind of drippy 
vaguely Mancunian indie jangle thing. Not quite Smiths, but there's like bits of that, mm. you know. Um, John Peel actually played some early White Town at one point, but needless to say, didn't quite catch on mm. at that point. Um, the Peak and Poke album that followed Women in Technology, which Peak and Poke, by the way, is another computer reference. There's a few of these. It's a wee bit stinky. Not great. Um, and it ends with this punishing 14 minute tune of a voice generator reading a Marxist analysis of <laughs> black representation in hip hop over this really grotty drum beat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It could be countered, however, that this negativity is overrepresented. Furthermore, it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of bold. You can imagine it being put out by a total concept project, and it also does kind of harken back to some of that really out there experimental stuff in the 80s that he was clearly into. I'll maybe give a shout out later on, but it's tough going. Um, yeah, actually, there's there's an EP out from this year uh, called Acid, and that's basically a live Twitch stream that was turned into a, a full release. So. Your Woman, the track we're talking about though, it's zeroing in that a wee bit, the origins of it, that trumpet riff that plays through your head every time I say it. That's actually sampled, Uh, that came from a 1932 song called Mm -hmm. My Woman. The version that he uses is uh, by the British band leader Lou Stone. Who recorded it with the Monsignor band with Al Bowley on vocals? Um, Mishra heard the Lou Stone song on Pennies from Heaven. Um, the Pennies from Heaven was a, a TV show in the UK, BBC show that starred Bob Hoskins. Mm. It would have this kind of mix of diegetic stuff and like the sing the, the the people in the show sort of miming over songs. Like Bob Hoskins was not singing because if you've ever seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. he's not a good singer. Mm-hmm. It also, you'll know uh, that little riff Imperial Death March Um, And actually Pennies from Heaven was broadcast a few years prior to Star Wars coming out So uh, maybe somebody can give John Williams uh, a wee shout (laughs) Uh, Pick his brains, see see what he's got to fess up But yeah, anyway, that uh, My Woman song was actually originally recorded And I think the lyrics were written in 1932 by Bing Crosby of all people My woman is mean as she can be my woman, she makes a fool of me. But the version that we hear uh, features that yeah, Al Bowley, Moroccan singer, on vocals. By the way, little uh, side note, Al Bowley died in a fairly amazing fashion. Uh, a Luftwaffe parachute mine exploded outside his flat <laughs> in, I think it was London, in 1941 during wow. an air raid. When they found him, he wasn't visibly harmed in any way, uh, but his door had been blown off his hinges and across the room, and basically the impact had killed him. 
anyway, yeah, so that uh, that old school origin of the sample is kind of reflected in the video for your woman, if you've ever seen it. It's meant to sort of, it's like a low budget pastiche of an old silent movie. And actually, it's got a direct reference to Un Chien Andalou, the film by Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel. Have you seen that? No. That's the cutting the eyeball with a razor blade. Ah. Uh, isn't, well, that's what it's most famous for mm. amongst extremophiles. But uh, it's also got um, a scene in it with a door, uh, an arm getting trapped in a door, and that's the one that's referenced in the, in the video. So the process behind Your Woman, but the process behind the song, he says, I was influenced by hip-hop, Cabaret Voltaire, and music concrete, which we've mentioned before in the show, and thought that the creative use of sound in avant-garde was brilliant. So that basically explains the sort of thing that I was talking about in the Peak and Poke album, where he starts doing stuff that's really quite experimental and mm. sort of obtuse. Um, this song is not that, but he was still messing around with a lot of techniques. Yeah. The early 90s, the advances with DAW's DAWs, as we call them, um, digital audio workstations, mm. um, are what made all of this really possible. I mean, Mishra basically had a mic, a sampler, an 8-track, and this free bit of DAW software that he'd got, I think he got off the front of a magazine, and he was working with the most basic of kit. But an interesting consequence of that is that the technology and the simplicity of the technology was slowly spawning a new sound and approach. So some new bands, some big bands were already using that tech. You know, we mentioned actually the Beach Boys mm. uh, were one of the big first big bands to really do it. But it was mostly useful for small artists without studio budgets. But the limited capabilities of the machines and the software, you know, because if you think about it, even now, if you're trying to render a huge audio file on computers these days, it's it can take ages. It can be very difficult. You maybe can't have too many channels or plugins at the same time. If you imagine going back to mid-90s, the, the process of powering stuff just wouldn't have been able to deal with a lot. So the limited capabilities led to a kind of minimalist, stripped-down sound. I mean, if you think about it as well, White Town was a contemporary of Beck, you know, the early mm. Beck stuff. Yeah. Loser also does a similar thing where it's obviously slacker, post-grungy pop, but you can hear the use of samples and stuff and the early technology on that as well. And again, it could be quite big beat, but it wasn't hugely complex in arrangements. You couldn't have layers and layers and layers of channels on these things out with going to a studio that could afford something that could process that. Um, about moving towards sampling rather than just using synths, uh, Mishra said uh, that was pioneered basically by a late period rave, things like the Prodigy's Charlie, where you'd make the sample a hook. You'd have samples adorning things before that, but it wouldn't really mean much in the context of the song. So the sample becomes like a key feature in the song rather than just being a little bobble hanging on it. Mm. Um, and yeah, Prodigy obviously pioneers in that field. A lot of hip hop did that in the 90s, uh, late, early nineties and late eighties as well. You know? Absolutely, yeah. like there's there's a lot of parallels here with stuff like Jay Dilla as well. You know, because of the use of like the um, NPCs and things yeah. like that. Mm-hmm.
there's a show on YouTube called One Hit Wonderland. It's a really good episode in this song. I agree with some of what's said uh, that pushed back against this song being classified as lo-fi. It's maybe semantics. I think it's low-tech. Definitely, I think it'd be hard to argue that it isn't low-tech when you see the list of stuff he was using and the era he was using it in. But the production in the song is really strong and the song itself is quite slick and exact. Yeah. You know, it doesn't... I mean, if you think lo-fi like Sebado, who we've covered, or even, even I think, to some extent, even Beck. Beck had a looseness to it, that kind of hippie slacker thing. This doesn't have, like, a hippie slacker thing to it. It does have a polished, very tight, very linear setup. It's 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 on a grid it's it's tidy and i think calling it lo-fi as a result can maybe it's maybe just a wee bit misleading yeah i actually do feel as though it is maybe a little bit Overproduced in a way Because it feels like It's been worked down so much It's not shiny shiny Overproduced But it feels as though The idea has been worked down So much That it's almost beige to me um, it, it becomes quite featureless Almost in places Apart from that main hook I think That's um, interesting Because according to Mishra The music was done Very very quickly mm-hmm. He laboured over the lyrics By contrast that's But the, the music itself He said was really really quick mm-hmm. As we said, in terms of the release, originally it was part of the Abort Retry Fail EP on Paracel Records in 1996. By the way, that title, Abort Retry Fail, is named after the error message that he kept getting from his Atari ST when he was trying to mix the tracks on it. He had noticed, I think, early on that the song got good reactions when he would play it during DJ sets, and so he decided to make some copies and send it to some radio stations. Mark Radcliffe heard it. Uh, and played it on BBC Radio 1's kind of flagship breakfast show while he was covering for Chris Evans and it became the most requested song that week. Now, for that, that's an incredible coincidence in a nice way. Chris mm. Evans is off, Mark Radcliffe covers for him, this song lands in his lap, Mark Radcliffe plays it, maybe Chris Evans wouldn't have played it, and it blows up and creates this guy's entire career. It creates one of the biggest songs of that, certainly that year, if not that era. Um, by the way, Amazing fact to be reminded of every time, Mark Radcliffe, the one-time drummer of the racist punk band Screwdriver. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, before they became the racist punk Screwdriver, <laughs> uh, but they very much did. Um, now, the attention that it got on BBC Radio 1 clearly put it under the noses of major labels. So this this was already a done deal. This song already existed, and people were already kind of calling for it when the major labels came calling for him. Despite being an avowed Marxist, uh, um, following that radio play, White Town signed to Chrysalis, a subsidiary of EMI, uh, but the label experience didn't go well. I've got some good comments on it. Uh, As a Marxist, I thought a major label would be full of fat, cigar-puffing men trying to scheme how to make money off me. If only it were. Instead, it's just the most inept collection of bumbling fools you'll ever meet. You have to remember that 9 out of 10 acts signed by major labels fail because they're that bad at their job. If they were venture capitalists, they'd be shut down. EMI signed me after I'd already been on Radio 1, so there was no A&R who'd mentored me or had any stake in me. No one gave a shit about me because I couldn't make anybody's personal career advance, so I was just kind of lost in that system. 
Now, he and the, the label disagreed quite strongly over the follow-up single. The label refused his choice initially, released their own choice from the album, but then Radio 1 and basically everybody else refused to playlist it. So then they sort of backtracked. But by the time they'd agreed to release his choice of a single, uh, it barely charted and the momentum was kind of gone. Mm-hmm. That single, by the way, was Undressed. Um, which I've seen people say had similarities to like the postal service. It was going in those that kind of direction, you mm-hmm. know. And I, I can I can see that. Um, it was dropped by EMI in 1997. <laughs> it only lasted eight months on mm-hmm. a major label. That's quite quite a stat. Um, clearly, the label didn't know how to market him. Uh, we'll come back to his image very shortly because that's a big part of this story. Um, yeah, I almost got signed to Maverick Publishing by Madonna, who apparently loved the song. I think he even flew over to LA but didn't end up meeting her. But he went for Universal. And I think he really regrets going for Universal because he says they basically did nothing. He said that the revenue is much, much lower in that song than it should be because it was just really neglected in terms of sync. The, the publishers were really idle, or he, he says they were, uh, especially when you compare it to the other big tunes of that mid-90s era. You know, you can think about the cardigans and stuff like that, you know, the big Romeo and Juliet sync and all that kind of stuff. When he was asked if he makes money from White Town, he said uh, bizarrely as a Marxist, I run quite a profitable label because I put it out myself. There's no recording charges, no costs, and because I'm straight edge, I don't spend four grand a week on cocaine. But yeah, so that song sold 165,000 copies the week it was released and rocketed to number one despite his refusal to even appear in the video or on British TV to promote it. Well, he is kind of in the video, but only in glimpses. You see him in TVs in the background or little kind of cryptic shots of the corner of his face and stuff. An interesting resource, Pitchfork, as part of that series that it does where it goes back and reappraises old releases, did a full review of women in technology. Um, just in terms of some pull quotes, uh, your woman proved that advances in technology had democratised recording to the point that aspiring artists no longer had to play in dingy clubs or suck up to label A&Rs. Mishra was merely the first of the number one bedroom superstars. Mm. That's kind of quite interesting, that. Yeah. You know, a period in music where the technology really did seem to be have a sort of democratising effect uh, the powers that be were sort of struggling to keep up with what was happening and it was leading to these breakout successes that you know in this case for example they were way behind the curve you know the labels wanted to exploit it but basically it was already out by the time they even heard about it and that's that's quite fascinating so Given all of that, given this like, 165,000 sales a week and Radio 1 playlisting and everybody knocking on his door, why didn't White Town do better? Um, he's got some pretty interesting observations in that. Um, he's very shy, very modest guy as well. He's got some quotes here. I'm a mediocre singer. I'm a terrible guitarist. I'm a pretty good keyboardist. I'm a good producer. Not amazing, but good. Uh, the liner notes of the album, in fact, do say, I-, I hope you like this album, but hey, if you don't, just go and record your own. It's really not that difficult. <laughs> and in terms of like the label not knowing what to do with this guy, not knowing what to do with his outlook, and also not knowing it- what to do with his image, he's 
slightly critical of the label, but also accepts a fair but a fair part in that. Got a quote here: "I've always been unattractive. I've always been fat. I'm never going to be a smash hit star. They don't know how to deal with that properly. That's what indie labels deal with." There was a story going around at the time that they were hiding me because they were ashamed of me. The truth was that I was refusing to do all television. They wanted me to do a big interview with fucking Loaded, which for me was the Der Sturmer of Britpop. <laughs> So yeah, he, he refused to go on top of the pops or be involved in the promotion of the song. I mean, from the very few glimpses of him in the video and the occasional album cover, I actually remembered him like Dom Jolly. Do you remember Dom Jolly, mm-hmm. a Trigger Happy TV? Yeah. I, d- I don't know why, I just had the two people merged in my head. I also have a wee bit of a Bernstein Bears Mandela effect going on with regards to the track Your Woman. I... I remember it being used heavily in Trigger Happy TV episodes, but I found a playlist of Trigger Happy TV and that says, nope, I made that up. It says it wasn't in it. So I don't know I don't know why that's happening. I could swear that I can <laughs> see it, but there you go. To, to reflect some of what he was saying about his looks, I mean, there, there's a paparazzi picture of him that led to a tabloid article. I, no, I can't remember what tabloid, if it was the Mirror or the Sun the Star, but it says... Uh, this fat, bald, specky bloke is top of the pops, and then the stand first says, Chubby Jyoti Mishra is tub of the pops. And that just your fucking absolute bottom feeder of garbage tabloid fucking shit. Yeah, fat shaming in. Uh, it was there's still not coming, I guess, but yeah, that is right up there, man. I don't, I'd like, as bad as fat shaming is, I just think it's even more of a redneck to think that it's somehow funny in any way to write tub of the pops it's not a good joke it's, it's the sun mate what do you expect it's, like, it, like, when did we come up with a contract that said that like aye mate you just write the things that are really fucking not funny and we'll just pretend like that's not horrendously cringeworthy and embarrassing that you wrote that anyway sorry that really bowled me over um in terms of the lyrics, uh, in My Woman, the guy's in love with a stone-hearted woman who treats him like dirt. Um, the lyric was written by Bing Crosby, who recorded the original version, as we said, in early in 1932. Original lyrics included, My woman is as mean as she can be. Mishra said that the original song was so anti-woman that I wanted to twist it another way. The lyrics are very nasty and, from a certain perspective, misogynist. I thought it might be an interesting twist to sample the spooky part and write a song around it that had different perspectives. The music was done fairly quickly. The lyrics took bloody ages. That's going back mm. to what I was saying about it. Actually, you know, according to him, it wasn't heavily worked down, uh, but the lyrics certainly were. Uh, so obviously Mishra is male, identifies as male, but sings a song from a woman's perspective, making it a, a kind of rare example of a hit record with a gender reversal. Prince Prince Alarm explored that territory in the song If I Was Your Girlfriend Was your girlfriend? There you go. 1987. Remember? His voice is actually pitched up an octave in that song as well. <laughs> Didn't know that. That's part of a really interesting experiment, which was up, which was, I believe, an album called Camille, which is a whole record of him done like that with his voice pitched up and him basically playing the role of a woman. And then to pass the favour on, when Cindy Lauper covered Prince, she kept the gender reversal mm-hmm. in When You Were Mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, Misha doesn't identify as gay, straight, or anything in between. Believes that people are just sexual and that everyone has a right to their sexual freedom. Um, I think he'd been very a- Marxist. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think he'd been asked on BBSs and stuff like that. He used to be quite 
active online they talk about him being like an early internet sensation you know in the sense that fans have stories of talking to him before he even got really big just on these little various mm-hmm. little bulletin boards and stuff um, get some more quotes from him I hate most male songwriting a lot of it falls into two camps it's either twee indie songwriting where it's about some girl who's perfect and runs through fucking flowery fields or it's like she done me wrong she's a bitch whore it's basically the paradigm of virgin or whore made into male songwriting and I'm like I want to write songs about what it's really like in a relationship if you're in a relationship it doesn't matter what gender or sexuality you are you're going to hurt people that's just love that's Mm. the nature of human relationships Mm. And also, there's another good observation, I think. It's very difficult because the way pop music is phrased, people appropriate African-American vernacular and try to do that. White people put on fake black voice when they're trying to be sexy. You kind of think, this is just carrying on from something that's really quite offensive when you get down to it. It bewilders me. Um, Lyrically, there's a lot of concepts kicking about in the tune. Uh, particularly that moment where we find out about the guy with his highbrow Marxist ways and, you know, lefties that maybe don't live uh, according to their own high standards. Mishra was influenced by authors Andrea Dvorkin and Wilhelm Reich. Uh, on his website as well, it's another famous kind of quote, explained that the song is about, there's five categories here, being a member of an orthodox Trotskyist Marxist movement. <laughs> Two, being a straight guy in love with a lesbian. Three, being a gay guy in love with a straight man. Four, being a straight girl in love with a lying, two-timing, fake-ass Marxist. <laughs> Five, the hypocrisy that results when love and lust get mixed up with highbrow ideals. And he claims that the first two of those uh, came from personal experience. I noticed as well, there have actually been some, in, in the years since, some trans-positive covers that sought to kind of expand the lyrical context. And Mishra's apparently also had to come out publicly against some people who used the lyrics in it in an anti-trans sense as well. Mm. He says, uh, you can the have... Fuckers will do anything, man, won't they? Yeah, it's, it's really reaching, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you can have plenty of wordy political pop songs, but they're boring. And you can have plenty of great things to sing along to, but they mean fuck all. A pop song should be like when you go to the cinema and you come out and you're a different person. It should actually change your perspective on things. Because this tune is so catchy, I could make the actual content really uncatchy and make it really confusing and people would still listen to it. That's quite nice. Trojan horsing your kind of mm. <laughs> subversive messages inside something that's that's so tuneful. I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of an old technique in different ways. I mean, Golden Brown, things like that. You know, loads of famous songs with really dark meanings inside mm. very hummable tunes. And in terms of this being a one-hit wonder as well, you've got to love his attitude to this. Mishra says, it is better than a no-hit wonder. Better than a no-hit wonder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to mm. be a professional musician and to be entertaining people 20 years after my biggest hit, I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive. Just to have one song that connects with people, most musicians dream their entire lives yep. of having that. It's fucking true, man. Yeah. You know? Whereas you can tell, though, that it's something that really drives other people insane and they almost try to escape it and and at the same time you can understand that you see stories about people that are haunted by a one-hit wonder for their whole life it becomes it sort of defines them he seems to fully embrace it though and that's really nice it's been used a few times since resampled in a few releases Wiley and Emily Sandy released a track called Never Be Your Woman uh, Dua Lipa's producers used the horn part sped up in the song Love Again Um, and there's even a Michelle Pfeiffer, Paul Rudd rom-com named after it called I Could Never Be Your Woman, mm-hmm. 2007. 
So all of that said, right, to, to reflect on our own opinions in this tune, right, it, it, it was ubiquitous for a long time. Yeah, that's why I couldn't it, get it, it was man. everywhere. The thing yeah. is, obviously we're in an era now where there is a massive fascination with the music of the 90s. And that was inevitable, right, because we had the big 80s retro explosion. And then the 90s tracks started to creep into dance floors and stuff. And I remember all those tunes that I fucking hated and having to be forced to, to, to relive them. Because I genuinely do think a lot of the pop music of the 80s was just superb. Mm. There's something, we're not going to diagnose it all here, but there's something about the songwriting at that time, big and unabashed and neon and OTT and everything, right? But the music of the 90s to me really never resonated the same way. I get that people have nostalgic connections. There's loads of very complicated and also loads of very basic Psychological reasons that we we have an affinity to some of these songs, but actually musically, I, I feel as a an era, it it wasn't as prolific and it wasn't as lasting. Maybe there's something a bit more transitory to it. Maybe also because the record industry had gotten a little bit better at the dark arts, it got a yeah. little bit the boy band, girl band explosion. Things started to seem a bit more anemic, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit more fake. Mm-hmm. And all that kind of element started to, to creep into things. That's we're obviously discounting yeah. the, the kind of grunge explosion and all those kind of, and even Britpop, which were quite organic. But when it came to the pop side of things, I never really had. I, I, I certainly wasn't looking forward to the nineties retro explosion. And now that it's upon us and has been upon us for a while, I am forced to reappraise certain tracks that I never thought I would be forced to reappraise. And I have to say that this one has absolutely weathered. Way, way better than most. And I think part of that is because it comes from such a fucking honest place. It also has a very unique sound and clearly there's there's a there's a an interesting phenomenon here in terms of like bedroom producers as well, which is exactly what this guy was, a pioneering bedroom producer. I I was amazed at how decent this how strong this still sounds. Even though it's been played to absolute death, it's nowhere near as brutal on my ears as so many other songs from that era. And that said, as a a musician now, and having done this podcast and analysed things, I'm full of admiration for the actual song itself. There's a lot of different things in it. That I think are really, really clever. Yeah. Um, a lot of like really skillful minimalist songwriting in it. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, if we compare White Town, for example, let's say to Billy Eilish, right, who's another sort of apocryphal bedroom success, we can also see the stark difference in the way that the breakout success was capitalised upon by a slightly less naive industry, a modern industry. You know, observe, for example, the contrast between him as a visual commodity and her. I also think it's quite interesting, actually, that the sound, there's like a, a bedroom sound aesthetic with the singing is in a very low register. It's all, you know, you're recording in the house, you're not going to sing, let's say, Total Eclipse of the Heart mm-hmm. at the top of your lungs in, in a home studio, you know, in your bedroom while your mum's making dinner. Um, there's, there's an interesting contrast. Him looking the way he does, him being camera shy, the, the industry not really knowing what to do with him didn't lead to ongoing success. Billy Eilish and her brother, who who also does the music with her. The reception, the treatment, the, the commoditization of them has been completely different. It's been night and day. And she also turned 18, though, which is a... I think that's probably quite a big yeah, reason for the change in image as well, given, yeah. given her age. They're different people, you know? absolutely. Yeah, uh-huh. But it is really, really interesting to see how 
bedroom project with massive success were yeah. seized upon in completely different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, it comes back to kind of what you said earlier on. They didn't really know what to do with them. Like, one thing that you've kind of missed in the whole bedroom thing there is like the, the era of the 2000s. Like, Calvin Harris is another one and came from the bedroom. But the the branding was really strong when he first came out, you know. Um, the Calvin Harris that we know is obviously the massive dance producer, but he wasn't that when he came out. He was the wee wee guy for, I think, Falkirk. I don't know, but he's definitely for somewhere obscure in Scotland that's not, not one of the big hubs, right? Um, and his music's a bit quirky and weird as well, you know, and that could have been, like, given t- 10 years earlier, it would have been quite difficult to place, I think, you know, because he wasn't a conventional... I mean, now he's fucking ripped and he's been, you know, he was seen Taylor Swift for a bit and all that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's amazing what money can do it for a person. But, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, like at the time, it was like, it was dorky little guy, you know what I mean? But the, the, the industry had learned how to deal with that kind of thing and the period between yeah. it's obviously it has evolved even further because through necessity it has you know SoundCloud, SoundCloud rap bedroom producers all that kind of Absolutely, stuff yeah, you know? you've got, like so many SoundCloud rappers and you've got people like the Girl in Red and stuff like that projects like that which are kind of they are bedroom projects but that's part of the basis that they're sold on mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that strikes me when you're talking about that as well is like, I don't know if I would use a comparison to Billie Eilish, but I would have definitely been down the road of, of like, well, there's, there's ways you could have marketed that to make it really interesting and mysterious and fun. Mm-hmm. But clearly the the, the, the the mechanisms, the technology around then, I mean, like the technology of, of, of marketing around then just wasn't, yeah. wasn't built for that. It just wasn't a thing. You know I, I mean? You were either going to be that or you would be mysterious, like, I don't know, like Prince or Michael Jackson. And at that point, like, they're, they're already like huge anyway. Apex Twin or something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's uh-huh. obviously not as edgy as that, but, you know, mm. playing on the anonymity of yeah. it and stuff like that. But yeah, it, the industry is definitely more sophisticated and has seen a lot more of this stuff to maybe know what to pull down off the shelf, what toolkit to use. Um, it's been pointed out that another thing that kind of contemporises a song a wee bit is the gender bend and lyrical perspective that actually ages really well in that sense as mm. well. It's quite anachronistic. It stands out as feeling both very very nineties and very out of time. Yeah, at the same, and that's what I mean. I, th- way, I, I feel like it. It does sound like it's from that era because we all associate it with that era, but it, it's unmoored. It, it's not anchored in that era, not even by the sound, and that's quite interesting. I don't know. I think I would disagree a little bit with that because see that bass sound. Um, it reminded me of Jamiroquai. and easy. They were getting big. They they got big in nineteen ninety six with uh, with us. I think the third album. And this is of the same vibe. The, the bass line's kind of funky. I can imagine any, a record label guy going, oh, you know what? Jamiroquai are quite big. I think we can find an audience for that. People seem to like it already. So I can see I can see a marketing guy or an A&R guy like joining up their dots and going, yeah, I can see how we can make this work. And it's catchy as well. It's got a nice hook. But there's a space in the landscape for this. And there was, clearly. There yeah, I was. mean, I feel Jamiroquai's closer to like Top Loader and... Well, they were funk. They're often like white man funk, funk, is what they were. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, um, but the, sonically, there's definitely there's, there's some like th- this song is about hip hoppy and you had Jamiroquai with a with a funkiness 
had a similar kind of drum beat and the, like I said the bass sounds quite similar to some of their songs although Jumara quite a much higher production value and was a whole band and are also terrible <laughs> fucking so terrible yeah I mean I, like, I just want to finish by making a case for this um, the, the fact that despite being a historic pop hit I think it's success and it's lasting power really is a monument to innovation and DIY spirit. This guy was a DIY music producer. This guy did all of this under his own steam against a wee bit of adversity, people walking out using the most limited of gear. It's an amazing success story for, for what he was working with. And it's also just an amazingly inspiring story in the sense that he really literally did just come from nowhere with no agenda in fact, his agenda was arguably Marxist, so probably mm-hmm. the opposite agenda. Mm-hmm. But he, against all odds, created this enormous kind of era-defining track. I mean, if you made, like, like a Now That's What I Call 90s, I would assume this would have to be on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it yeah. really is fucking, like, totemic of mm-hmm. that. that was all done with absolutely no nefarious plan no fucking mad producers in fact the industry completely failed to do what the industry is meant to do and that's astonishing to me and i I find that as a result a really compelling song because it's something that is is a fucking unicorn it is a total musical unicorn having to engage with it the way i did the way you have to for this podcast there's a lot of shit to like in it, you know what I mean? The, the sample was well done, the way it's been kind of fucked with using that uh, Yamaha keyboard he used to kind of mess it up a little bit. You know, that's kind of cool. Um, the bass is really nice, the keyboards are nice, the guitars sound good. It's got a sleazy feel to it, which I quite like, mm-hmm. you know? But for me, like, I find it really hard to fully, to fully like the song because it was everywhere at the time, mm-hmm. you know? And you're fight- That's it, you're fighting against yeah, the ubiquity of yeah, it a wee bit. Yeah, and I... As as I would, like nineteen ninety seven, I would have been like what eleven when this came out. My family had the radio on all the time, and I still I remember this song as being on all the time in the radio. Kudos to him, it's amazing. I honestly, I, I, I think it's, it's not, remarkable. Yeah, but the more the song, I read about it, the more I liked it as well. Mm-hmm. The song I can take it or leave it, but I love I love the lore. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. lore is the lore is what makes it for me makes it more compelling. Like you say, for me, do you know what's interesting? Right on Spotify, right, it automatically played another song afterward. And do you know what it played next? Crazy Town Butterfly. That's brutal. I never ever have engaged with that band in any capacity on any kind of fucking social media platform or algorithm. It is a kind of of a piece though. It does have the same kind of feel. Which oh, but is at least he's conducting himself with more dignity than yeah. those fucking it's just weird, aging clowns. Uh, it made me go, there's definitely somebody, made me think there's definitely somebody that's played those two back to back in a club with great success. Probably Weaver. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Jody. Well done. I know he's a pretty switched on guy and he may well at some point listen to this. And yeah, hats off to you. Yeah. One thing I just want to pick up on before we finish off here is one of the things he said in an interview that when, you were talk- when he was talking about his major label experience, I think it's the same interview that he quoted. Um, he said that major labels are just really bad at making money. <laughs> 
Incredibly inefficient yeah. machines. Yeah. That, that, that thing you said about being an investment capitalist, I mean, that yeah. ratio, mm-hmm. you know, No Gallagher's talked about that quite a bit as well. That kind of, I mean, he says, you know, one in 10, you know, but it's not. It's it's, it's like fucking 5% at best, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of these cases. I mean, they're big earners, the ones that do earn, but the rest of them just get flushed. Yeah, and that's what, that's what he says. Like, the major label, the thing that really struck him was just how bad they are at actually making any kind of money. You Let, know? Let's just be honest here, right? We've been in music long enough to know some of the people that went on to get jobs at record labels and stuff and in my experience most of them were fucking daft okay <laughs> not necessarily bad people but fucking daft fooey patter wired to the moon loved a line loved a drink just fucking like what the fuck are you ever going to do like it's, yeah, like, it's like a dog I mean, that caught the car so once they get a job at a record label they're like been chasing it their whole life and they're like I don't actually know what I'm doing that's the people at record labels I'm thinking about that. Some of the people that I've met in the past before, and you're not wrong. <laughs> really, not wrong, which is worrying because, like, there's pe- these are people that, in my head. These are people that have worked kind of similar roles to you, Chris, in some capacities. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I and I've got, path with I've, a lot of I've them, gone eh? on to maybe become the A and R for another label, and then become like and part of the machine or become a tour manager for somebody like I don't know, a big pop act or a booker or an agent. And yeah, for them, nine times out of ten, they are, as we would say in Glasgow, complete rockets. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, uh, another unsung in the bag. If you are a, a subscriber, this won't matter because you're about to get a treat. If you're a regular listener and you liked the unsung episode, I mean, some of them are a bit more obscure than this, but the, one, many. <laughs> the one that we're about to do for subs is going to be like a, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna but do it actually has good synergy with another, a, re- a more recent unsung episode it, as well. It, it does, uh, unsung episode. Yeah, unsung, yeah. 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 Um, so we're going to do... Total Eclipse of the Heart <laughs> by Bonnie Tyler. That's a callback to earlier in that episode, I'm yes. sure you noticed. Uh, and it's a fun song to talk about. If you want to hear that, you're going to have to subscribe. Sorry, guys, but we're going to dangle that carrot. It's You can do it from £4 a month yeah, if you want. Uns- uh, Patreon.com forward slash unsung pod. And if, if, you're, if you think that maybe £4, you'd like to give a little bit more, then check out our record club. Um, the information about that is all there, so I won't bore you about it too much. But basically, we send you records. Yeah, so whether you're a musician or just a, a casual listener, we take on board some of your tastes and then we curate and send you records. Some of them digital, or if you go to the higher tier, you actually get limited edition vinyls in the post. And those are bought directly from the bands and directly from the labels. The point being to try and maximise the money they make. Because even if you go and listen to them on Spotify, you're giving them point zero 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 fucking one nine pence or something like that. At least this way, everybody wins. We stay in business. Mark can buy this fantastic new ointment that's keeping his <laughs> flaky hands moist, and the bands can go and reinvest it. Uh, oh, and also, you get lovely, lovely music because I promise you, there's no shit in there. Do you know what? I seen an article today about how Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth uh, said that he got 23 million plays on Spotify last year, and all he got was 20 quid. Somebody's taking a bite. <laughs> I know that the figure used to be that a four-piece band needed 16.5 million streams to make a minimum wage. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's probably been a bit facetious there, but it does illustrate the point that it ain't, ain't a great amount of cash. And I'm talking streams a yeah, month, by if, the way. Yeah, if, well. you make, if you make it, or whatever that means, millions of streams a month, it ain't a lot of cash. You're, no. still, you're not going to be buying cars, you're going to be still hitting the road and touring like fuck. Aye. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Record Club or subscribe at the basic level but that'll enable you to hear not just the Bonnie Tyler episode but a whole shitload of other very racy bonus content as well. Yeah, so do it. We'll see you next week, regular people for something special. 
Čau. Bye.